Welcome to Peak Mind. I'm your host, Michael Trainer, and I have a very special episode for you today with Jason Niemer, the founder of Acro Yoga. I discovered Acro a few years back as a practice to profoundly enhance connection. Um, it was introduced by a friend, and I found it to be challenging, fun, playful. Uh, and a really beautiful practice. I've, I've been a yoga practitioner now for, for well over 20 years, and I love it as a, uh, a way to go deep inside and to stay fit, to stay balanced, to stay healthy. But Acro has taken that practice to the next level. Uh, the reason being that Acro is a partner practice, and so it's an incredible way to uh, to play, to dance, to communicate, to deepen your listening skills. Um, it's, it's like dancing, but um, in a new and innovative fashion. And so it was really beautiful to be able to dive deep with the founder, uh, Jason, around the nuances of how ACRO came to be and the ways in which we can use the practice to deeply enhance our relationships. I think you're going to derive quite a bit of insight from this episode. I had a ton of fun chatting with Jason. And I wanted to also offer you guys an opportunity to uh, delve deep with one of my, another one of my favorite uh, new finds, which is Feel Free. Feel Free is a plant-based tonic. Uh, they are one of the partners that helped me bring this show to you. And it's something that I've now incorporated pretty regularly into my life. It's uh, kava and kratom, two plants that have been used for hundreds of years uh, in South Asia and the South Pacific. And as someone who has, you know, kind of had a, a done, a, I basically did a cost-benefit analysis with alcohol and realized that it's costing me more than it's benefiting me. I've been looking for alternatives and frequently have been, you know, in the question around what kind of elixirs could I find that might give me a great deal of joy and enhance my ability to have fun, but without the deleterious consequences of alcohol, without the hangover the next day. And so I found Feel Free and it's honestly been a revelation. Um, it's something I carry with me if I go out for a couple drinks with friends and instead of having alcohol, I've got my Feel Free with me. I find that it helps me to reduce my anxiety and overall gives me a feeling of euphoria. Uh, euphoria, basically. I've been a longtime fan of elixirs, but this elixir really takes it to the next level. So if you're looking for an alternative to alcohol or you just want uh, a, a, a new opportunity to delve deeper into reducing anxiety, in my experience, as well as um, tapping into euphoria, just an overall feeling of, of, of well-being, I highly recommend you check out Feel Free. Uh, they gave my audience a really significant discount. So if you want to get 40% off your order, you can put in Peak Mind 40 at, at checkout. Again, that's Peak Mind 40, and you'll get 40% off your order. And without further ado, it's my great pleasure to introduce Jason Niemer. Welcome to Peak Mind. I'm your host, Michael Trainer, and I'm here with my good friend, Jason Niemer, 
Jason, it's a pleasure to have you. It's so nice to be hanging out with you again. <laughs> I know, my man. For those listening, we just jumped off of a, uh, a beautiful 30-foot bridge into a natural spring here in Austin, Texas. Jason did, I don't know technically the back diving terms, but... Backflip with the full twist. Exactly. I want to say it was a triple gainer. I don't think it was, but I just, <laughs> that's the one thing I remember from watching Olympic diving. Um, but you are a man who is, for those who are, who are listening, uh, one of the co-founders of Acro Yoga, which is one of my favorite new discoveries and practices. But also, you occur to me as someone who is embodied, someone who inhabits their body um, in a way that is evocative. Cool. When I when I come across people that occur to me to be um, walking their talk, if you will, uh, it's it's always something that encourages inquiry. So it's uh, it's an honor to sit with you, and mm. um, I'm looking forward to sharing with the audience a bit more about your journey. And specifically, I'd love to start with Acro because. I don't know if I share this with you, but I wound up living in Sri Lanka at a very formative period in life when I was 18 years old. And my first exposure to yoga was with a beautiful woman by the name of Wida, hmm. who was probably 76, maybe 78 years old. And she was also embodied. She occurred to me to have a, a certain glint in her eye mm -hmm. that was truly evocative. And she spent her days painting. She came from uh, a tremendous amount of resources, uh, yet she had forsaken much of that to pursue a path um, of, of yoga and painting, really. But one of the things, I remember asking her what type of yoga she was teaching. It was my first exposure to yoga, and she said, it's Weedy Yoga. Uh. And she didn't say it from a place of uh, ego, like I'm branding this as my yoga. Right. More just like it's, 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 it's about a practice that needs no name. Yeah. And the degree to which that practice grounded me as especially being on the other side of the world from where I grew up, a place where I stood out like a sore thumb. You stand out like a sore thumb in most places. Because <laughs> you're so tall. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Six foot four, uh, you know. With a big smile. Big smile, white guy though, in, uh, in Sri Lanka. Definitely stood yeah, out. A little, little more than normal. Exactly, a bit more than normal. Um, but, but my first exposure to yoga was was profound in that it, it provided me access to a place that I didn't know prior uh, would would open doors unforeseen. Yeah. Um, in terms of things that I wouldn't expect either, obviously there's the physical aspects of the practice, mm -hmm. but I think it was also my introduction to the breath and the intentionality of breath. Uh, it was the introduction to community mm -hmm. in a beautiful way. and. Uh, you know, we met probably, I don't know, maybe five or six years ago, I think with Travis and them, um, if I'm not mistaken, um, at that, that, that beautiful gathering where I actually had hosted the Dalai Lama events um, down in the South Bay. But I've seen you subsequently in, in a variety of gatherings and, you know, you're oftentimes those beautiful sunsets, I would see you uh, at the green in Santa Monica. But for those listening, can you share um, a bit of a context into what 
acro yoga is? Sure, it's one of my favorite questions. Um, so acro yoga for me is basically, I see it as a tree and the tree has three roots and the roots are acrobatics, yoga and therapeutics. And those are ancient roots. And there are some of those roots that are in certain communities such as yoga. Yoga did have an origin, it came from India. Acrobatics is something that is expressed all over the world. Therapeutics is something that is a human trait. It's something that we learn from our ancestors and that we practice with each other. So these are the roots that feed the trunk of the tree of acroyoga. And then the branches are different expressions of acroyoga that mix different elements of acrobatics, yoga, and healing. So you know our friends Travis and Leah. They're an amazing couple and Leah is tiny and Leah is the base for Travis often. She lifts her boyfriend up and a lot of times when women learn the power of lifting their partners up in acrobatics, that's more healing than any of the Thai massage that I can teach. So basically acroyoga is a partner practice that helps you expand who you are by knowing where you are in your limits and where somebody can help expand that idea. So I love uh, learning what words mean. Acrobat, acro from Acropolis is another way. Polis is city, so the Acropolis is the city on the edge. Acrobat, bat to walk, is walking on the edge. So then acroyoga is union on the edge. So acroyoga is a practice that helps take you and partners to different edges and finding connection as we learn how to trust and express in very dynamic, beautiful ways. Mm. That's a long elevator pitch. It's, it's a deep topic, but now you've got this idea of this tree that's got ancient roots that feeds into this tree that is ever expanding. And I've been doing acro yoga now for 20 years and every year now I'm seeing new expressions of acro yoga that I've never thought of that the community is, is generating content that is much further than I would ever been able to see or create on my own. Well, I think what you just said there is, is beautiful because I think oftentimes people birth things. And I think in the most effective sense, we're oftentimes vessels, right? We're, we're simply, when we get out of our own way, um, vessels for something bigger than us to move through. Yeah. Uh, I felt that, for example, with Global Citizen. Um, but what I think you said is, is super beautiful because oftentimes when things become constrained, it's because the founder or the owner of that thing, that concept, tries to hold it as their own, to yeah. identify with, with it as, a, as an egoic construct. But what you just shared, I think, is, is, is super powerful because I think when we're most effective, we are simply a vessel and mm -hmm. a seed, if you will. Yeah. And what you did was plant a seed which is growing in the branches beyond even your earliest reckoning. For real. Which is which I think is 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 truly beautiful. I love I'm not an experienced uh, acro yoga practitioner, um, but I've love I love trying new things and growing in new ways. And I think there's something, you know, as we you talk about therapeutics, you know, I think Gabor Mate is really having a moment and I think appropriately so. And a lot of what he talks about is the root of addiction, for example, in trauma. Mm -hmm. And what occurs to me as you were talking is so much of our early traumas or experiences actually get stored in the body, mm -hmm. right? It's why, you know, for example, 
you know, a gazelle that gets attacked by a lion on the plains of Africa, the first thing they do if they escape is to shake it off, right? Yeah. To move that out of their body. And then it's not necessarily stored as uh, this, this traumatic experience where we as humans oftentimes have traumatic experiences that then we repress. Right. In my limited experience with Acro, and I, I will say like the last time was actually when I was with you, Travis and Leah, <laughs> I was actually in a bit of a funky place. I was, huh. I was in, a, in, in not the most optimal headspace. Yeah. And Leia, who is half my size, uh, based me and flew me. Mm -hmm. And the experience of taking flights and of being connected was and is a liberation. Yeah. And I think that the degree to which touch, but also play can be uh, healing is, is not to be underestimated. Can you talk a little bit about the therapeutic aspect of acro like how how do, what is the efficacy in your experience or design that enables that enables the the, the partner work to be uh, a therapeutic opening a, a healing experience yeah so like any practice you have to learn enough basics to be competent and the basics of therapeutics really starts with yourself, learning how to listen to your own needs and your own body and learn how to do self-massage. And as you start to learn these techniques of body comfortable and perfect fit, perfect fit is just when you put your hands together like you're doing a namaskar mudra, if you move one hand a centimeter higher than the other, the, the hand fits together even better. So a lot of these things are principle-based where you learn in self-massage how to address your body. And then for me personally, when I got to a functional level of being a massage therapist, I started offering massage to my mom and my dad and my brothers. And that was something that I didn't know how much healing there could be until I was literally massaging my mom's belly thinking, my God, I was in there at one point and I have the honor and the privilege to, in our lifetime, give that love back. So I think a lot of the practices come from learning in your own body and then finding people that you have deep relationships that you want to give this gift it's like i'm this kid that's so excited i've got this new toy and i want to share it and that toy is helping people feel better and then when it blends with acrobatics which is the therapeutic flying when i lift somebody up in the air everyone's done airplanes so there's this innate primate game that literally primates play i have a friend who's a primatologist and she tells me about these trust games the bonobos do and they do it to build trust so when i have somebody up in the air and i'm doing these trust games and they're laughing and i'm laughing and gravity's lengthening their body there's so many things conspiring to help the person feel present help the, the person feel trust and when the emotional body is open, the physical body opens. So there's a lot of things that stack up on top, on top of each other, literally to create an environment where it's a lot of time when people think of, I need to heal trauma, it, that, that sounds heavy, that sounds not fun at all, but I'm gonna go play with Jason and giggle and do all these crazy positions where I don't even know where I am. It's, uh, it's a full body yes, oftentimes, lots of giggles and sometimes tears and like really deep, beautiful releases. Mm. I love that. I, I think for me, I remember my first experience with therapy actually, and I work with an art therapist, 
But one of the things they did was to get me off of the couch, so to speak, and to start to move and mm -hmm. to move into the body. And mm -hmm. I think, unfortunately, we are so often disembodied in our culture, right? And I think, especially, you know, I think there's a legacy of sort of stoicism in, in earlier generations, mm -hmm. but also our work-obsessed culture has led many of us to sort of, you know, sit in a particular posture, which is not necessarily an empowering posture. Yeah. They say sitting is the new smoking, behind a screen absorbing blue light for a disproportionate amount of our waking hours. Yeah. And what I love about ACRO is it is the antidote to that reality. Completely. It is, um, it is a way in which adults can play again mm -hmm. and explore again and, and learn a new language. And I would say one of the things that I find most powerful about it is that also invocation of trust. Because mm -hmm. you are truly trusting someone um, to, to hold you, mm -hmm. for lack of a better term. And the degree to which that um, cannot be underestimated in my experience in in being a, a healing experience is profound because yeah. I think many of us go through modern day life one not being touched mm -hmm. very frequently um, two not knowing who we can truly trust yeah and and I think furthermore um, not playing mm -hmm. you know there's very little play in our lives as we become adults. Uh, and there's a few greater modalities that I'm aware of for the sort of intersection of those things than, than acro. Yeah, I would say contact improv could be uh, an analogous one. And, you know, the two things that you hit on, trust and play. So animals, actually, a lot of animals do play. And scientifically, when you analyze the behavior of an animal, there has to be a reason and a lot of what the reasoning is is new behaviors are discovered when you play because mm. you are not trying to do something for food for reproduction for shelter so when you don't have those very basic low chakra needs being addressed and you can access the totality of who you are and you're in a creative space lots of new behaviors are developed and you know in some animals like orcas and primates it becomes culture where they teach each other what they've learned from being outside of the very monotonous living of life so that's play and then trust is another one that's really cool i i consider it the oldest currency so before there was bitcoin and before there were coins and before there was paper money before there were shells before we even had pockets to put anything into trust was how we exchanged things and the cool thing about trust is when I give trust I feel lightened and when somebody receives trust they feel trustworthy and confident so it's this currency that you exchange where there's not a loser usually there's a buyer and a seller in a market so trust has this magical quality that when it's exchanged intelligently and the intelligence comes from credit checks. Like, are you trustworthy? Are we ready to do this or not? And in acro yoga, the buffer is having a spotter. Like, okay, I trust you, let's try this. Let's get a spotter so it's extra safe. So this very ancient way of exchanging trust, it feeds us in a way that no other currency can. Mm. Beautifully said. What do you think is available, or, or maybe you can speak to this personally, 
or, or speak to what you've witnessed in community. What do you think is available in the potentiality of relationship as it relates to ACRO as a practice? In other words, in what ways could ACRO, or have you seen or witnessed or experienced, ACRO as a relationship builder? And I'll give a little bit of, of context into why I ask this. I feel like so much of yoga practice, from my experience, and I've been practicing now for over 20 years, is really a, a beautiful journey within. Mm -hmm. But it's oftentimes about a very insular practice. It's mm -hmm. a very, and, and, and beautifully so. It's that ability to go within ourselves and to quiet the noise of life. And I think especially as a, also as a, as a meditator, it often fosters the quietness, moving the body enables the space where your mind can then go deeper. Yeah. Right? And it was often used in that way where, where one would practice yoga to enable an effective meditation or a more effective meditation. What strikes me about acro is whilst there are aspects of it that are for sure insular, it is inherently dynamic and relational. Mm -hmm. And I think that's fascinating because I think it then stimulates and evokes different aspects of ourselves. But in that evocation, what have you seen as it relates to relationship? Because I've noticed uh, one, one aspect seems to, it, it seems to generate really profound community. But, but can you speak to kind of the technology as it relates to relationship? Yeah. Um, so... I love yoga. I will be a practitioner until my last breath, and I've loved learning the theories of yoga. And I feel like that's what, you know, a yoga class and a yoga practice does: is it, it equips us with ideas of how we might uh, relate to others, whether it be the environment, whether it be our mental state, and then we get tested. You know, I'm feeling so good in my yoga class, and I get into traffic, and I'm a total asshole, and I can't deal with people honking their horns. So what uh, acro yoga has is it's applied yoga. So you have these theories on your own yoga mat and then when you get into situations, whether they be ecstatic joyful ones or really challenging ones, how do I regulate my breath when I feel challenged by somebody? How do I speak my truth when I feel like a boundary has been pushed? So a lot of things that were not taught in school, unfortunately, I feel like acro yoga has the potential to equip people with ways to become better listeners, better communicators, and to set up a dynamic where they can thrive. Because if I'm in a relationship where I can't thrive because I'm not being listened to in the way I want to be listened to, or if I'm not trusting uh, the person in the way that they're demanding trust from me, this gives the potential for people to rewrite the way they interact. And then if it's a couple that's been together for a while, and I've met a lot of those, uh, you don't know how many implied rules you have until you start working together in a way that is outside of your normal box. So the normal box is, you know, I get up, I make breakfast, I take the kids to school, and you get so many patterns in your relationship that you don't even know it. So then when you get into an acro practice, you have the potential to really foundationally rebuild the way that you're interacting with the person that you love. So I've seen people become a lot more playful, a lot more curious, and usually in a relationship, there's more of a dominant and more of a passive person. And in the practice of acro yoga, we switch basing, flying, and spotting. You wanna do all three positions. 
as the base, you'll look up and be like, why are you so scared? And then you fly and you feel visceral fear. Or you'll be the flyer and you're like, why are you so wobbly? And then you lay on your back and you try to support somebody and you realize, wow, this is really quite difficult. And then you're the spotter and you say, why don't you do it with your legs in this alignment? It's so much easier, but you can see it from the outside. So when people viscerally get to feel compassion for somebody else's role, you get a lot more uh, empathy and a lot more uh, ability to feel what somebody else's suffering is like. Mm. Have you noticed in that empathy, in working with couples, have you noticed um, any particular insights or breakthroughs that have been afforded through acro yoga as a practice? Uh, personally, just come back to curiosity so often, mm. uh, like, wow. Like I could think this guy's so insensitive or this woman is so rigid in the way that she does X, Y, or Z and um, curiosity and not having it all figured out, not thinking that I'm the one that's going to fix their problems, just asking questions and just being a good listener and being curious has been what has unraveled a lot of uh, not so skillful dynamics that people have built relationships on. I remember so clearly one of my first years building this practice, I was in San Francisco teaching a Friday night acro yoga class and this couple came and they were fighting the whole class. As soon as class was over, I looked at my coach and I'm like, thank God they're never gonna come back. Like that was horrendous. And they came back the next week and they started fighting a little bit less. And then they came back the next week and after like three weeks, I went up to them and I just said, all right, you got to give me some backstory. What's going on? And they just said very clearly, like, we were raised in a really, you know, East Coast kind of aggressive situation, both individually and we built our relationship and we never had these tools and this is changing our lives. And I got to see it every week. And that was a very early marker for me to know I already have success in my practice and in my life because I can see this couple going from here to here in three hours. Wow. Yeah, I think when you, having you know, lived on the East Coast, and I think it's more a, more of a stoic uh, culture. I think uh, oftentimes where relationships are built by giving someone a hard time, mm -hmm. uh, or in the in the in the in the in the British context, taking the piss, taking the piss. Yes. Um, I think. W and I'll be honest, when I first saw Acro or like an Acro would evolve at a party, I definitely, my East Coaster was a little bit like, oh no. Who are these hippies? <laughs> what's going on? Put your what, shoes back on. What's, what's going on over here? This ain't how we do it in New York City. <laughs> but, uh, but then, you know, when you actually move, and I think that's the power, right? When you move from that critical mind, when you, when you move from that judgmental mind, which I'll be totally frank, I have a tendency to, to be in that space. When you're, when you're basing someone, for those listening, that's you know when you're on the ground and you're helping someone to fly, um, when you're in that place, it requires full concentration, right? Because yeah. you have someone, uh, their safety in your hands, you know? Or when you're flying and you're trying, and you feel that sense of, is someone gonna, let me, am I going to fall? Is someone going to drop me? You know, you're not checking your phone. Exactly. <laughs> it's so far from those relational dynamics. And I think that's another thing which isn't often talked about, right? One of the things I love about this podcast is 
I get to have hour-long conversations that are someone giving me their undivided attention. Mm -hmm. And we don't think about it that often, but that is a rare gift. Like how often do you spend an hour dropped in with someone without them checking their phone, mm -hmm. without any distractions, without... And unfortunately, that's becoming more and more of a rarity. Yeah. And acro forces that level of presence mm -hmm. by its very nature. Yeah. Because one has to be fully present because they are not only dancing, although I think dance is a great is a great analogy, but but dancing in such a way that that someone's full weight and presence is dependent upon yeah. your full attention. Dancing is not as dangerous as acrobatics <laughs> yes. can be. Acrobatics exactly. doesn't have to be dangerous, but it's inherently more dangerous than dancing. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and so I think there's something truly potent about that as an antidote to some of the modern day cultural contexts we find ourselves in that dilute, uh, the, that dilute empathy, that dilute attention, that dilute relational potency, yeah. for lack of a better term. Um, can you speak, because you just mentioned acrobatics. We've talked a little about therapeutics. So the acrobatic element, how, how, would you, um, how would you break down the role in which acrobatics are part of the DNA of acro? Yeah, so acrobatics is the bling. It's, uh, it's the fire. It's the, I call it the solar aspect of the practice. And it's, it's what draws people in uh, to a large degree. And it's the only thing that I know that I do regularly that consistently blows my mind. Like today when I did the backflip with the full twist off the bridge, you know, I gotta be supremely present, confident, and I know bad things can happen. I told you, like I hit a rock on the bottom with my foot and I didn't break anything, uh, but the ability to assess risk especially in America because of the the litigation and sue happy people all of our jungle gyms in America the risk has been taken out of it in Europe the jungle gyms are built differently like they don't take risk away from children so I find that one of the huge gifts of acrobatics is it opens us back up to our natural potential as humans and when you look at animals I see the squirrels constantly doing parkour in the trees outside my window and the other day I saw a squirrel actually fall maybe two or three feet before it caught another branch and animals are constantly pushing their physical limits and we've been taught at an early age you know don't break a bone don't do this don't do that and we're having sedentary problems more than we're having uh, injuries from being too risky so acrobatics helps us redefine uh, a comfortable level of risk that we can have on a daily basis there's really not too many days that go by that i don't do something that is risky and i love that because i'm living my full potential most days and then when you get into partner acrobatics i have a new acrobatic partner uh, we've been training together for about two months and it's so fun to be able to just get to know her and what how she ticks and how she likes to be spoken to so when you do high level risky things your communication has to be very succinct and very clear so we've learned in a short amount of time how to trust each other's communication and listening because if you don't bad things happen so when the risks are high the distillation of wisdom of how you uh, resonate with a human is fabulous it's one of my favorite things mm. Beautifully said. Do you, 
what do you find as you were talking earlier about the squirrel and the observation uh, of nature and I find nature to be one of my greatest teachers yeah and I know many art forms are evolved from observation of nature mm -hmm. right Kung Fu for example mm -hmm. you know uh, and many many times moves are, are, are often actually named after particular animals mm -hmm. To what degree did animal movements or animal physiology uh, play a role in acro and mm. its evolution? It's a great question. Uh, I haven't ever really seen it that way. I see it much more clearly in gymnastics. When I'm swinging on rings, I feel very monkey-like. But actually, acrobatics, I don't see a lot of critters in the wild throwing each other around. But if I had to pick a couple of animals, um, and definitely the way that primates move and, and creatures that swing through the trees, um, there's a, a naturalness and a comfort to uh, how gravity can be channeled through the body of creatures. And then, you know, the other one would be uh, birds. You know, we do fly humans, so to watch uh, whether it be butterflies or birds, what I love about feathers and little butterfly wings is, you know, you have a creature that weighs two or three grams that in a huge windstorm, it can decide where it wants to fly and where it wants to be. So I think I've learned more about acrobatics from the subtle soft creatures and one of the principles that I teach and it's one of the few I think universal principles that I believe in. There's not that many things that never break down for me. Uh, receptive before strong. Mm. So as an acrobat, if you're about to do a skill, you take a deep breath and then you get into the power. And everything that I've ever done acrobatically always starts with a feminine intelligence and a sensitivity. And I learned that from watching the softer creatures. Mm. Speak to me a little bit about, and this could be interesting, but not necessarily man woman but feminine masculine right polarity interesting uh you know ways in which that polarity plays out in human relating do you find any of that um because it sounds like you mentioned earlier uh you know relationship dynamics mm -hmm. and in some ways from my listening a softening for example of some dynamics that were perhaps out of polarity or out of out of harmony out mm -hmm. of balance um, as it relates to s sort of masculine and feminine polarities, does that play a role at all in acro and, and in your experience? One of the things that I found interesting, just from a personal point of view, as I mentioned earlier, like uh, Leia, who's a dear friend and a, a woman who happens to be half my size, you know, I'm 6'4", 200 plus. And she's probably five four, not even five four, five, five two, five, maybe five, <laughs> five feet, five feet, maybe you know, ninety five to one hundred something pounds. Um, but she was the first person to ever fly me. I love that. She she based me. In other words, I she as a woman half my size flew me. And what was wild about the experience was. I was able to surrender into what I would call my rested masculine or a more feminine aspect of myself um, where I, she was really in control and yeah. was telling me what to do. And I found a, there was a, for me, there was a, there was a restedness in it, right? Like yeah. as, 
I found at least in my masculine element that oftentimes is in a more active role. Mm-hmm. It's in a more um, go out and make things happen role. Yeah. And to to be there with um, a a woman who actually physically was much smaller than me, but yet was in the place of power and mm-hmm. control. Mm-hmm. And yet I had to trust her ability not to drop me, not to yeah. let me down. There was something really profound about the dynamic. And I know that it involves a kind of a fluidity and people, different people based, and it mm-hmm. isn't necessarily gender specific. But to what degrees can you speak to sort of masculine and feminine polarity and how acro yoga can play a role in... Uh, in the dance of those polarities. Yeah, so the first couple years of doing acro yoga, Jenny, the co-founder and I always had this joke and we never did it. We wanted to make a shirt, acro yoga, strong women, sensitive men. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just exactly what happens when you do this practice. And I remember maybe six years ago, I was at the Dutch Acrobatics Festival. It's the longest standing European festival. They have, you know, usually five to 800 people and they do a couple of performance nights. And this year, there were three different acts where it was women bases and men flyers. And each, each one, I got more intrigued with, like, I never knew that was a goal I had until tonight. Like, I want to learn how to be a very nimble, sensitive, uh, aware man flyer on a woman base. And I've definitely flown on a lot of women and... Um, you know, the cool thing, one of the cool things about the therapeutics and the acrobatics is oftentimes gender just completely vanishes. And a lot of times the way that I'll feel it uh, in therapeutics is I'll be at these acro yoga parties where we're just all massaging each other. It is not an orgy. It's a different animal. Uh, but there's <laughs> a lot of love and a lot of consensual touch. And I'll be on my back with my eyes closed and somebody will be massaging me and, you know, immediately I want to imagine like the most beautiful woman in the room and thinking that that, it, that it's a woman and then I open my eyes and it's this, this this man I'm like oh wow that's not what I thought it was so to I've trained myself to be really open with loving touch is loving touch and trust in acrobatics is trust in acrobatics and not letting gender be I think gender uh, drives a lot of our energy and a lot of our decisions and when it's a deep human connection that goes to a spiritual level. There is no gender with spirit. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, one of my yoga teachers, I got to travel with him for a couple weeks in Europe and I was getting him on all the airplanes and I said, Dharma, it says gender, are you man or woman? And he just looks at me and says, I am neither, I am spirit. And we just had a good laugh over it, but he's always teaching. And I feel like when people get to a certain level of spiritual attainment or just deep presence, because it's it's the same thing, uh, you know, gender is beautiful. It is important. It is a polarity. It does create uh, the chemistry that creates life. And at the end of the day, when you have deep resonance with somebody, it doesn't really matter. Mm. Beautifully said. Yeah. So I want to shift a little bit. You just are about to birth a book. When this is released, it will likely uh, be out in the world. Move, connect, play. Talk to me a little bit about, because also for those listening, you have sort of inadvertently become my book doula. So for those listening, I am writing a book 
and Jason has uh, what very unintentional. I don't. There was no intention behind it, but has become kind of a uh, uh, a supporter in chief in this journey for me. Well, I want to give a little tiny backstory. I think this is great. Please. So, before I knew who you were at all, you were just my friend's friend, and I started talking to you about the book thing and giving you support because I love supporting people, and, and if I have knowledge that helps somebody, whether it's acrobatics or book, and then a week later, I get an email from my agent saying, hey, you need to hit up these people for podcasts. I'm like, oh, Michael Trainer, That'll be easy. <laughs> I'm helping him with his book, so here we are. Exactly. <laughs> And I was, I mean, I, interestingly enough, I was uh, driving down the road. It's my last podcast in, interview was with, here in Austin with Adrian Grenier. And I was driving down the road listening, interestingly enough, to um, Tim Ferriss's podcast. And he, uh, and it wasn't actually with you, but he shouted you out. Mm-hmm. As someone had asked an audience question, had asked, what are the, t- if you had two to three physical practices, uh, and for those who are listening, he wrote a book called The Four Hour Body, which was a very you know powerful and potent book, uh, New York Times bestseller, etc. Um, and is definitely a analytical, um, measurement based, uh, you know, you know has trained in the martial arts. But I, I believe it was the first thing he actually said. And that was not what I expected. He was talking about a, a multitude of physical practices. And you know, I thought it would be something like deadlifts or whatever. The first thing he said was acro yoga was yeah. the what the the transformational physical practice that. And as someone who occurs to me, you know, as an a a type, you know, has has measured and practiced so many different. You know, one of his things is becoming you know a, really a master experimenter. He's experimented with so many different physical modalities and tested them with, you know, all the different measures mm-hmm. uh, to determine efficacy. For him to say acro yoga was in the top three, it really struck me, and it just happened to coincide with us uh, having reconnected because we were here in Austin, um, and so it was. It, yeah, there's just no accidents. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it was interesting to me that that uh, that that came up, and it led me to deeper inquiry of like, yes, I knew you, and yes, I know acro yoga. But I would actually like for it to become a more significant part of my life. Uh, and interestingly enough, you know, I just took out a book from another person I had on my show, Catherine Woodward Thomas, who wrote a book called Calling in the One, which has been on my bookshelf for many years. And I'm actually just now reopening it. And it's all about finding your, your, your partner for life. Cool. Which is another confronting practice. But I'm, uh, I feel like acro is such a potent way to be in the listening Yes. As it relates to relationship. Yes. And and also to get to know people in a new way, right? Mm-hmm. Like, not that I necessarily have a romantic intention around acro. That's not been the case. But I feel like an acro green is so much a, more of a, of a, an ideal place to say meet someone yeah. than a bar. Well, and, you and know for your I mean? listeners, the acro green is a place in Santa Monica where there's tons of acrobatic circus and shenanigans going on correct you probably you may have seen it at some point when like our friend travis is uh was on american ninja warrior you know he'll he'll be with you and uh, you know several other people like standing five people on top of each other on the shoulders at sunset with the uh, pacific games. ocean in the back exactly um and it's potent and powerful but to bring it back to the to the essence of the question you know as we talk about 
book and birthing a book, which is, as we were talking on our way to, to Barton Springs, you know, I was asking about writing as a practice for mm -hmm. you, and, and do, you, do you like it? Do you love it? And you actually said you did. And I'm curious, writing is such an insular practice. Mm -hmm. um, what did you learn about yourself in the mm. process of writing your book? Hmm. Well, the audiobook was definitely quite a microscope because not only did I have to write the whole book, but then to read it out loud over several days and just hear my own jokes. <laughs> uh, it was, you know, the good news is I love it and I'm so proud of it. And it's hard for me. Uh, it's historically been hard for me to say those things. I'm somebody who loves to be humble and loves to hide behind uh, the shadows a bit. And I don't, I don't regret that part of me. I love that part of me. And this is a practice of really stepping forward and, and stepping into the spotlight and sharing what I've learned, uh, not because I need it to fill my ego necessarily. And it is part of that. It is part of me filling my ego and feeling that my third chakra is fully online. Uh, but my goal is to get a billion acroyogis before I die. And mm -hmm. You know, I've set a lot of big goals. I wanted to go to the Olympics and I ended up performing in opening ceremonies when I was 21. I wanted acro yoga to be a global practice. That took about five years. And setting this goal, I set it about seven years ago. I was like, okay, this one's gonna take the majority of the rest of my life, I think. Um, and what I learned with the book writing process is I have what it takes to be able to write a book and when I got the book deal, I still didn't know if I had what it took. And then when I got the manuscript to my editor and I sent it for the first time, I was terrified of that next phone call. I thought she was going to say, oh, this sucks, or you've got to change this, or what are you thinking? And she was like, this is great. I'm like, okay, well, what do we need to fix? She's like, no, 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 this is great. And I was, it was really like, as crazy as it was to see the book deal sent by email to get that response from the editor after I had finished the first manuscript to be affirmed. And then the even cooler part is now I've had a handful of friends read the book and they had such good feedback and they're not just saying it to make me feel better. Like the things that they said really moved them and it really moved me. So um, yeah, what I learned is I have what it takes to be able to communicate things through this medium because I'm supremely confident as a teacher, I'm supremely confident as an acrobat, but now I'm becoming more confident as a writer, and that's something that uh, I'm excited to you see step through this journey uh, in, in the coming months as well. Yeah, I think there's something, I, I imagine many people listening have at least considered writing a book. Um, I know for me, having grown up I don't know if I shared this with you, but I grew up with a, what was termed a learning disability. So I grew up actually being tracked in remedial classes. And I remember as a kid growing up in public school in Chicago, you know, being with the three other kids in LD classes yeah. and walking by the advanced kids, mm -hmm. you know, uh, in the library and feeling such a clear division between the advanced and at least in my mind, the remedial yeah. uh, version of myself. And I remember the 
very clearly actually the moment when I said because I kind of got fed as an, from my identity uh, through humor I was kind of became the class clown and that was the way I compensated for my insecurities mm-hmm. around writing um, I had a clear moment where I was like you know what I'm going to take this on as a challenge and I actually asked my mom to transfer schools and I was tracked again in remedial classes but I, I, I made one of the things I'm most proud of is I shifted my identity mm. and I had to live into that shifted projection of identity but I got a tutor and I worked my ass off. I mean, mm-hmm. I remember rewriting entire chapters of books just for like the, the process of feeling wow. myself in that, in, that, in, that, in that process. And I actually wound up you know, getting a Fulbright scholarship. I actually wound up teaching, ironically, English literature. That was my first <laughs> job out of, out, of, out of college. But there's still a piece of me that has that early identity it's yeah. like who are you to write a book right yeah. like, I don't know if I've talked about this but you know it t- took me two and a half years to even write the proposal yeah. right and not because it was that hard to articulate the ideas but because of the identity yeah. early form identity resistance mm-hmm. that one bumps up against and I share this just as a sort of a vulnerable share because I think so many of us have ideas that we want to birth into the world, um, but our self-limiting beliefs keep yep. us from fully stepping in. And I'm still confronting those. Um, but one of the things I'll share is you become an ally in the breaking through the resistance. And I think it's really beautiful because you occur to me as someone who is humble, yet has already... Uh, in some ways birthed a movement in acro yoga, right? Like this is something that's definitely, as you said when we started, grown way beyond yourself. And here is an opportunity also to, and I don't, I don't sense this is your rationale for doing it, but, you know, I love, what I like about you is you're, humil- you're humble. You know, you don't lead with, you know, oh yeah, I'm the founder of Acro Yoga. You know, like that's, it's something one has to inquire about to get to know about you. But I like that you're stepping into a place of, from mission, I want to impact a billion people's lives through this practice. And therefore, you know, being an author and writing this book is going to foster that mission. Yeah. Even though it is a very different skill set from being a practitioner of Acro Yoga and being very much in and around sort of embodied practice as, as, you, as you are. I would say yes and. Uh, part of a yoga practice for me is that book right to your right, the Tao Te Ching. Mm. That translation in chapter 18, I've been reading for a couple of days now, and there's one line in there that says, I'm going to summon it, um, to become in alignment with the way of the Tao, one must develop compassion for oneself for others and when I first wrote it I wrote for oneself and others but that shift of I am being compassionate for myself for others this is a a yoga practice of reading ancient scriptures and pulling wisdom into your day so I want a billion acro yogis so I need to step into the light I need to be powerful I need to be confident but I'm not doing that for me. I'm doing that because I want to affect people. And if I want to be in alignment with nature, 
I have to come back with compassion for myself so I can be compassionate for other people. And that one line has been so rich for me in the past couple of days. And that book is something that you can read for the rest of your life slowly. You can read it in, in a day. Um, but this is what acrobatics for me doesn't have. Acrobatics doesn't have these dusty old books that just stop you cold and make you reconsider everything. So beautiful, by the way. The Tao Te Ching is, for those who don't know, by Lao Tzu, is one of, I think, I would put it in the top five. It's number books. one. It's number one for me. All times. Yeah. yeah. It is absolutely incredible in regards to wisdom. And I had a pocket Tao Te Ching, which I would carry with me mm -hmm. um, everywhere. And it's like, it's, it's, it's so potent. And I think... The sentiment that you just brought up is is one that really speaks to me and I think deserves unpacking, which is, you know, it's sort of a line of that Marianne Williamson quote, you know, which has been attributed oftentimes to Nelson Mandela of, you know, it's not, it's, it, it, it's, it's not, you know, our smallness we fear, it's actually our, our bigness, you know, yeah. it's actually stepping into the grandness, which is our unique, in my own words, our unique song, right? Mm -hmm. Like one of the things I talk about in my own book is what is the music that wants to live in the space between two people mm. and how do we become a stand for that song, mm -hmm. right? And you can't sing a song if you're not willing to, you know, to stand up and share that song. And yeah. for me, that was a huge fear. I mean, mm. I actually declared it a leadership challenge that I would do karaoke. I had lived in a country amidst civil war on the other side of the world as an obsessive compulsive who had been jumped by a gang and, and feared other people. I'd done math, but I'd never sang karaoke. Yeah. And so to stand in that place and sing, sing a song, mm -hmm. you know, was so potent and, and powerful as a breakthrough. And I think the idea of writing a book is that, right? Because you are birthing your song. You are singing it in hopes that people resonate with your music. Yeah. But no one knows. And you're, you spend years putting together lyrics and garnering the courage to birth that song into the world without even knowing who's going to show up to the arena, you know, yeah. who's going who's gonna to witness that. And yet you do it as, as an act of faith and as an act of love. And I think that it's... Um, it's truly beautiful and you're calling me your book doula and uh, as a man this is the closest thing I'll ever feel to giving birth uh, because when the book actually came to my door and I had boxes in front of my door and I opened the box and I pulled out a book and I held it in my hand it was just like wow this is my DNA is in this thing and this is something that is gonna grow around the world so I can't wait for you to feel that like, yeah that moment is a moment I, I I can imagine what what for those and now we're shifting a little bit because we're talking a little bit about writing and birthing but if there was a moment that was distilled I know you took time and you actually went to Thailand you, you took yourself on retreat you really mm -hmm. nurtured yourself and that's one of the things I've been thinking about how do I set myself up for for this nurturing process for yeah. these words to be the most effective vessel for the mm -hmm. words to come through me what were what were some of your greatest insights in regards to 
becoming the most effective vessel? Like when did you feel the workflow? What were the what were the things that you did to set yourself up in that regard? Patterns uh, and not overdoing uh, and having good advisors. Uh, and one of my advisors, uh, she's a PhD in Middle Eastern studies and she said, she got this from one of her uh, professors. She says, don't write more than two or three hours a day. There, there is no eight hour writing day. You can't just crank it out. And uh, when I got the deeper I got into my physical practices that wrote a lot of the books. So I would just be in Thailand. I got up at 4 a.m. and I, I, my bath, I had this huge bathtub, five-star hotel, two-star plumbing. So it took like 45 minutes to fill this bathtub. <laughs> so I'd get up at 4 a.m. and I lit a bunch of candles and I started the bath. And then I would just meditate, I would pray, I would sing, I would do all my you know hippie yoga practices. And then I'd get in the bath and the sun would rise and I would just be having my tea in the bathtub, watching the sunrise over the ocean. Just like, like the most beautiful movie you could imagine, I would try every day to give myself the best possible day. And then when I was at a retreat center during lockdown in Mexico on the beach, where the whole world was, you know, really suffering in a lot of ways, I was really winning in a lot of ways. I would go to the beach and, and I would have sunrise at the beach and I would have my journal and sometimes I would really need to be on my computer and bang things out. Other times it would be, you know, me meditating about movement practices and just going really deep within nature and myself. So I gave myself, I spent uh, probably about 30% of my book advance on my book retreats and I don't regret a moment of it. Like I really wanted to set myself up for the most amazing environments so I could bring the best forward and, and I feel like I did that. Hmm. So in part it was about honoring yourself and creating the context in which you could be the be be in the best place. Cause I, you've mentioned that to me but it hasn't landed until now. Yeah. Right? Like you were like, I really get the sense that you, like, for example, I, you know, I've been thinking about, oh, maybe I'll go into nature and just, you know, drive, drive the car into, you know, the middle of the most epic landscapes because I find that to really evoke and invigorate my spirit. But interestingly enough, this morning when we were talking about it, you were like, you know, I don't know, but I feel like all, that could be good for a while. But having also like the comforts of things that really make it so that all you need to do is focus on um, the gift that is that process it, that landed for me. I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. You know, and like nourishing yourself and treating yourself. Um, it seems somehow, I don't, I don't know, like there's a worthiness piece that comes up there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and when you, when you fully pamper yourself and you give yourself everything you need to some degree, there's no excuses. You, you have everything you need. Now just sit down and do the thing. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's feeling worthy enough to spend the money to put yourself in the optimal environments, but it's also just you're taking any excuses you had of why you can't do your best work in life. Now it's time. It's out of step the equation. Up, step up to the plate. It's time. For those listening who may be wanting to birth their own book, uh, birth their own process, are there any other insights you'd share? I, I love the setting yourself up in the physical and how you, how you do that in your practices. Um, I like also this notion of focusing only for a few hours instead of trying to, you know, drive, your, drive yourself crazy. Are there any other sort of tangible insights sure. you can garner or share? Yeah. Um, 
writing and editing are two different things and this is a little bit a little bit disgusting a little bit graphic but you don't eat and shit at the same time <laughs> like you eat you digest and when you need to shit you shit so don't write and then look at it and be like oh i need to put a comma there like they're very different skill sets and i hired people to catch the commas and to do the things and the people that you hire if you hire people make sure they're clear that your voice is paramount that that if they make changes they're not putting their ideas and their words in they're amplifying and they're they're trimming the weeds away from your beautiful flower um, so have have time where you generate content and have time where you edit and i would say generate for a while until you feel like you're ready to edit and on a writing retreat for book two, which I haven't even really dove into, uh, I was at uh, Tim's place, uh, one of his one of his properties, and I was writing, and I was naked on the grass, sun on my ass, typing on my belly, and I was writing about uh, this story of I had this, I still have this uh, life philosophy of. If I have something and somebody wants it more than I do, I give it away. So I told you a little bit about this. I lived in a van in San Francisco and on my 30th birthday, my van was stolen. All my, all my things were stolen. I basically had nothing. And that's what got me to be a nomad, traveling the world, yada, yada. So I had this jacket and I get on this airplane and the, the, the stewardess uh, says, you know, I really love that jacket. And I thought, okay, I might give this jacket away. And on my way out, I saw him and I said, hey, do you, do you really like this jacket? And, and he said, yeah, it's amazing. And I gave it to him and he started crying. And as I was writing it, I started crying. So, you know, if you can, while you're writing, feel deep emotions, it hasn't happened that many times on my writing retreats, but if you feel dry, if you feel no emotion when you're writing, you gotta change something. So mm -hmm. when you have that, that's a gem. And then polishing gems is, is editing. And editing's important. It's, if you don't edit it well, it's not gonna have the potency that it should. But to get to the potency, you have to create the right environments. Hmm. Wow, I like that idea of weeding around the flower and maintaining your own voice. That resonates. There's a question that was asked to me that I'd love to ask you. Um, it was pretty transformational for me at the time. And the question was, if there was one thing that you would take away from your life, and one thing that you would add to your life to have the most transformational impact from where you are now to where you'd ideally desire to be, what would those be? And I'll start while you think, because it's a big question. I'll share mine. So mine at the time was if I gave up alcohol and if I called in a profound loving relationship, those two levers would have my life I could envisage six months from now would be truly different in a, in a profound way. So is it for right now, for the future, or? For right now, what, what, would be the, what would be one thing that you would let go of or, or give up or remove, right? Yeah. To edit, if you yeah. will, to, yeah. to weed around the flower. Yes. And what would be the one fertilizer to that flower that you feel would be exponential? Yeah, so the let go is clear and easy. It's something that I've been working on. And I have a friend, uh, it's an amazing healer, chiropractor woman. We're doing tandem treatments. 
and she said recently um, I, I don't do trades anymore you know I just I just do money there are no trades and I didn't realize how many trades I, I'm doing so she's coming to work with me and I had three clients lined up I'm like oh well, well I, I owe that person because they did this for me so letting go of the barter economy with what I'm doing and charging charging a premium for what I offer so I guess that is the one too uh, a lot of my growth is about my worth and the the tricky part about it is I love what I do so much I will do it for free for the rest of my life and I've done it for free for most of my life and so I already feel like I've won the riddle to, to live in a happy life and uh, money has been an interesting dynamic for me to understand how to wield intelligently and so me claiming my worth and me being more professional about how I deal with money by letting go of this idea that I need to give things away to be valued versus being able to charge a premium for what I offer. Mm. That one hits me too. Yeah, I think we, we, we met each other for a lot of reasons. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We just, we just keep unwrapping one after the other yeah. after the other. <laughs> no, I, I give away, you know, I mean, I, my biggest, I'd say professional contribution, it was a nonprofit, right? Global Citizen, which has grown to be, um, you know, it's, Leveraged now over forty billion dollars uh, in, in contributions, which is incredible. It's a lot of good karma. Uh, yeah, it's beautiful. And again, I was there, you know, from birth through through the through uh, the third festival. So that that's something that's grown beyond me and been shepherded beyond me. But 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 during that time, also recognizing right, like birthing and and living, um, you know. On a nonprofit salary in in New York City is also challenging, especially as one thinks about some, a life you know where partnership and family becomes a priority. And oftentimes, I mean, that my whole journey started actually of being in, which is, was a great gift of being in service. So I, I actually was fortunate enough to get a fellowship to grad school, um, and which was amazing. I don't know if I've shared this actually with the audience, but. Uh, I actually did my graduate work in nine months and then I took the other year that I would have been in grad school and volunteered around the world. So wow. I, uh, it was incredible. I mean, I traveled with the Greenbelt Movement and Wangari Mathai, the first African woman to win the Nobel Peace Prize with, wow. her, with her work and movement in, in Kenya, landmine abatement in Cambodia with an incredible organization called um, COPE wound up in Colombia and traveled, but but all these things were, you know, just, which was beautiful, me sort of being of service, but I do remember there, and there have been, I definitely haven't talked about this out loud, I came back and I was absolutely broke. You yeah. Know? I mean, I, I was, there were couple, there were years of my life where I lived ostensibly in poverty. Like, yeah. I kid you not, $14,000 a year. Oh, like, for real. Like, real, real, like giving and and for me it came down to like i felt like i was being my heart and giving and offering mm -hmm. but i also wasn't honoring my worth i wasn't yeah. truly holding and believing in my worth and right now i'm confronting that because yeah. i have this incredible opportunity where it's like i want i've been wanting to birth this mastermind for years and I can see myself already being like, oh, I'll just give it away. You know, like, I'll just invite all these people. And I've done this many times. Like, I've hosted dinner parties where I spent literally, I did a dinner party for 200 people. I spent a month. No one knew this. I literally hosted this, had all these incredible artists, 
at the end of the dinner, I scraped plates. Oh yeah, for two hundred people. I'm that guy till, too. Till five in the morning, <laughs> and got up an hour later to let all the rental co- guys come back in. So, so I really relate to that because um, I, there's a huge piece, and I interviewed a woman who's amazing. Uh, for those listening, if you struggle with similar concepts, called Jen Sincero. She wrote a book called "You're a Badass." Mm. which I think has been on the New York Times bestseller list for like, I don't know, years. And she wrote, you're a badass at making money. Mm. And it talks about her journey from like that same conversation of like the coolness of being an artist and being a giver and all that, but being broke as a joke versus stepping into this notion of worthiness. Yeah. And, and she wrote this book in this irreverent humor, which I love. Um, but it was really a reckoning for me. And talking with her and interviewing her for the show, I was like, oh yeah, you mm. know, like, you know, there isn't like this nobility in like, you know, not owning your worth. Um, matter of fact, if you can combine your altruism with means, you can actually be authentically far more yes. profound in yes. your giving. And in fact, that's some of the most potent Givers and philanthropists are those because they actually exactly. have means yeah. to 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 make a difference. So I really, man, you 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 triggered something. I that I I relate to that. I don't. I've not shared any of those stories. I've I, that hit me, man. So I, I love I'm that podcasting you're ste- the podcast. <laughs> I, I, I love that you're stepping into uh, to that notion of of owning your your worth and. Uh, Something you said that uh, I want to share, uh, something that happened recently for me, you talked about you know, getting done and your heart being so full, but your bank account not being. So I just had uh, my birthday party recently and had some of my best friends from around the world come and through this amazing event. And my friend had all of my really good friends write poems basically. And the question was, if you were uh, an animal, what would you be? And if you were a body part, what would you be? And my friends just recently graduated from osteopathy school and he picked the heart. And he talked about how the heart is the master organ that supplies the whole body, but the heart uh, receives blood first before it gives it out. And he was really clear about that point. And I think people that are very big hearted giving humans the only way to be sustainable is to fill ourselves first and it's it's a practice and one of the problems with uh, English language and I have not found and I've asked a lot of people I have not found any language that has a word for selfish that doesn't have a negative connotation could you imagine somebody texts me it's like hey you know do you want to come out I'm like um, I'm feeling kind of selfish today. I'm gonna stay home and uh, take a bath and then rub oil on my skin and I'm not gonna hang out with you like that is obscene like nobody would ever text that but what would life look like if we actually were confident enough in self-care that we could be like the heart where we fill ourselves in every pump a little bit of blood for ourselves and then the rest for everyone else Um, that's the sustainable way and that's Mm. what i'm working on reconditioning and uh yeah i would rather be on this side of it than to be not connected to my heart and not really even aware of this conversation at all Mm. Well, I think I love that you're you're also connecting it to the heart, right? Because you know it's that notion of filling your cup first, or the goose and the golden egg, right? You can't actually lay golden eggs if you don't take care of the goose. Yeah. Um, and it is actually a heart-centered practice to fill up your cup first, right? 
um, because it's the sustainable path, right? Like, so I, I think there's something, I think there's something really rich in that, uh, in that practice. As you think about that commitment to yourself and owning your worth, uh, what do you see as either your greatest, and maybe maybe both, but what, as your greatest barrier to really mm-hmm. truly holding that space? and or the greatest opportunity on the other side of owning that worthiness. Yeah, the barrier is fear that I'll lose friendships or lose relationships or lose clients. Um, but, you know, I was, I was walking with you and one of my best friends who wanted to buy some private lessons for another friend, you know, I usually in my past self would quote her something much lower because she's a friend, so I want to hook her up, but I gave her my normal rates. And she just came back and she's like, all right, I'm gonna pay you $1,000 for you to do three Zoom lessons with my friend. And so universe is already affirming my shift. Uh, The biggest opportunity is to just live without fear and just trust that abundance is, uh, I have abundance in so many levels of my life. Like I have literally so many people that I can receive loving touch from. There's so many people I can get off an airplane and receive a therapeutic flight from. I, I feel like I'm one of the luckiest most abundant people that I know, except for, you know, the bank account. My bank account is not abundant, but it's growing. And so, you know, the fear is losing friendships. The opportunity is to align with people and a reality that is who I am now. So if friends that I've had don't value what I'm doing, um, you know, I can still keep a friendship with them, but it's not going to be including the services that I've provided uh, in the past. I would also actually maybe even go as far as to argue that if they don't value what you're providing, are they truly a friend? There's that too. Because I think one of the concepts I talk about in the book I'm writing is this notion of batteries and black holes, right? Which actually is different from giver and taker. Because actually a giver can be a black hole energetically. Some people use their giving as a means of energetically courting you mm. into expectations or manipulation ara- sure. around. And so I, I bring that up to say that I think when you, if someone doesn't truly honor who you are and what your gift is, your offering to the mm-hmm. world, and not only that, if someone expects you to just give that to them, without really regard for the energetic cost or contribution that enables that to continue to operate in the world, right? Which is another way to think about it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, not just that one transaction, but are you empowering? That's why I love supporting artists, right? It's like, okay, it's not just about like me in this particular moment, but also like how does this foster an artist to continue to do their work and, and spread it further, right? you know? Um, to me, that's actually... A sense of honoring who that person is or mm-hmm. maybe a better word would be seeing truly seeing that person yeah and also there's there's something there's a gift and I'm not saying I'm perfect by the way uh, you know I'm, I, I, there's, I'm sure there's there's plenty of opportunities where I could have been better but I feel like also we get so filled our cup gets also filled when we support someone else oh, for you sure. know it's like I love when I you know, when I get a ticket to a concert for an artist I love, I love that I'm somehow part of that, mm-hmm. you know, show and enriched by it, you know. Yeah. Um, I remember taking myself on a date to see with Fleetwood Mac, which is an artist I've loved forever. 
And that show, actually, their tribute to Tom Petty, was the stimulus of for me actually finally launching this podcast, which has wow. gifted me so. Yeah, I saw this tribute to Tom Petty, and some people may be able to relate. But I had I had an opportunity to go see Tom Petty, and actually, like, I had a free ticket literally yeah. at my doorstep. A friend of mine was hosting; he was the promoter. Uh-huh. He actually is a founder of Coachella, but I didn't want to reach out and ask him, for, even though I could have, for a free ticket. So I was like, oh, I'll catch him next year. Of course, there was no next year. He passed. And it was the catalyst for me realizing I didn't want to die with my song still in me. And Tom Petty was someone who sang his song. Yeah. And I had recorded a podcast and sat on those recordings for years. That's so cool. And in that moment, I committed to singing my song and putting it out in the world. And that was in large measure because I took, I, I was like, I want to, you know, not, not that Fleetwood Mac needs my support, but I want to go see my, see them. I'm worthy of taking myself on a yeah. day, went by myself. And the gift was in their music, I discovered my own. Yeah. Yeah. And in the realm of giving, um, a lot of times I definitely identify as a chronic serial overgiver and when somebody gives to me and I'm actually uh, the resting masculine, I love that, I've never heard that. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I'm in that space, I give them the gift of being able to be Santa Claus and be able to be that person that's showing up and offering something. So, you know, all these things are polarities and all these things have gifts and lessons in them and whatever our current compasses, whatever our current distribution of I like to give or I like to receive, it's always going to be moving. Uh, But if we don't have an awareness of where we are in the spectrum and we don't have an awareness of what uh, the wake is behind us of our actions, you know, I definitely have been getting much better at receiving in my my birthday party. um, So it was an event, it was 20 massage therapists and 20 guests and it was a high-end thing. And the day before, it was my friends, and we were all just doing massage with each other. And I just told everyone, I'm like, guys, I know it's my birthday tomorrow at the event. It's not about me. Please don't make a big thing. Like, this is a a solemn ask. And then one of my best friends, she's like, all right, well, today it is about you. So stand up in the circle right now, and we're all going to shine love at you. And it was very awkward. But I was like, okay, you, you, you have a point. So I received the love of my friends and they were really skillful about how they set it up. Um, And I know that that's something that is helping me for the rest of the year, just ride that wake of, I hung out with my best friends and they loved me really well. So, yeah. Yeah, to be loved well is one of the greatest gifts in life. Yeah. And and one of the ways in which, yeah, we can truly, I mean, those, those are what we remember, you know, when you, I don't know if people listening have done the sort of the eulogy exercise, but when you mm. think about your own passing, right? Mm-hmm. Like as Ryan Holiday talks about with Memento Mori and the, the wisdom of the Stoics, right? Living as if death is an, is, is an impetus for, for, for truly appreciating the virtue and value of, of each moment in this life. You know, for me, when I think of the eulogy, it's like I want to be surrounded by people I love and yeah. share quality experiences with the people I love. And when people take the opportunity to truly honor you and celebrate you those are the moments you never forget and you don't want to wait until you're dead (laughs) how about that exactly right exactly right you can't hear it as well no you definitely cannot hear it as well so i want to be mindful of your time you have a book out that is profound called move connect play the art and science of acro yoga subtitle the art and science of acro yoga which by the way, everyone needs to, to try 
and be part of the billion person movement that you're that you're birthing and shepherding forward where can people obviously go get the book it's on Amazon at all your local booksellers where can they connect with you online uh, I keep it simple Jason Niemer n-e-m-e-r Niemer means tiger in Arabic so uh, Jason Niemer Instagram uh, Facebook uh, you can find me there uh, jasonemer.com is my website so I've been doing a lot more work with companies uh, teaching them how to communicate and play and just create more bonds in their company culture so that's something that uh, is from COVID there's lots of pivots and that's one of them just being able to go from teaching at festivals and, and big events with uh, the yoga community to really getting with an executive team and figuring out what their goals are and finding really cool curriculum that's engaging that helps uh, thread bonds through the team. Beautiful. I love that. Well, I can speak to the fact that you <clears throat> share, I think, profound insights and are do have the heart of a giver. Mm. And I want to support you as you step into this next chapter. So it's been a real honor to uh, get to know you more deeply. And uh, I'm looking forward to uh, seeing what this next chapter yields. Well, you're going to come to Austin for at least a month and you're probably going to get swept up in the cool kids <laughs> crew like everyone else has. <laughs> I think we'll be spending some more time together, my friend. Done. Yeah. Thank you very much. And guys, go out and check out the book, Move, Connect, Play. Jason Niemer, it's a pleasure. Thank you. And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Jason. I know that I did. Um, I so appreciate you guys for listening. If you enjoyed the show, send it to a few friends that you think would be a fan of Acro Yoga or maybe you want to practice with. Uh, that's always the best way for this, this, this community to grow. Uh, again, if you love the show, we'd love a five-star uh, rating and review. It, it helps us uh, get better and better guests. I've got some really exciting guests uh, coming up, actually. Uh, profoundly excited. I was doing my research this morning. So please stay tuned. Um, again, if you want to tap into my new favorite find, uh, check out Feel Free uh, Botanic Tonics, uh, linked in the show notes, and pop in Feel Free, uh, or excuse me, pop in Peak Mind 40 at checkout for 40% off your order. And if you have any feedback, any thoughts, if you want to share this out on Instagram, Jason can answer any questions, I can answer any questions. Uh, please hit me up on Instagram at Michael Trainer, and uh, man, I just want to say thank you guys. Thank you guys for showing up. Thank you for listening. It's such a joy to uh, do this show, and I never take your time for granted. So, thank you so much. Wishing you guys all the best. Until next time, go out there and live your best life. <laughs>